Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Today is a a big day for us as members of this church. I mean, this is the last Sunday of our church year. We run September through the end of August, and so this is the last opportunity, the last Sunday that you have to give uh, to our church in this budget year. And so if you haven't given a dime all year and you want to make up for all of that today, you are more than welcome to do that. Uh, we encourage that, in fact. We would actually celebrate that. And uh, I say the little tongue-in-cheek, but a whole lot of seriousness as well. But uh, big day for us. We have a members meeting tonight. I want to encourage all of our members to be back for this uh, meeting tonight. It's not just because we'll be uh, uh, voting to affirm our motion to uh, renovate and to build an office building, but also it's the end of the year. It's a big time. We'll have... Uh, Three families joining our church tonight. We'll be uh, affirming our deacons for this upcoming year, new budget for this upcoming year. So this is a big moment for us uh, in the life of our church. I want to encourage all of our members to be back tonight at 6 p.m. right here in this room. Uh, This morning, I'm going to finish up the series that I've been working on this month. And I've decided that for the next four Sundays leading up to our uh, capital campaign, which will begin, I'll start preaching to that on the 30th of September. So for the next four Sundays, Labor Day and then the three Sundays after that, I think I'm going to do a series that I'm going to entitle, He Will. I've been kicking this around for several weeks now, just, uh, just thinking and contemplating and, and praying about the great miracles that we see in the Bible. And it's really hard to kind of narrow that down, but this morning as I was uh, getting ready, I just felt like the Lord is leading me to a couple different stories in the text. And so, text. And so what I want to do over the next four Sundays Uh, beginning next Sunday, is just talk about this idea that God can do whatever he wants to do. And whatever he's calling us to do, he will provide. And so we're going to look at some of the famous stories in Scripture, like Noah and the ark. There in Genesis chapter 6, where God calls to Noah and says, Noah, I'm about to rain uh, down on the earth for 40 days, which they'd never seen rain before. And I want you to build an ark 450 feet long, 70 feet, 75 feet high, and 45 feet wide. And I want you to build this thing because through you I'm going to preserve life. Can you imagine being Noah in that situation? And then Abraham and Isaac, God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And, and finally he has a son of his own through Sarah. And then as a teenage boy, God calls to Abraham and says, I want you to take Isaac up on the mountain and kill him. Can you imagine being Abraham at that moment? God, you've promised me all of this and now you're asking me to sacrifice my son. You know the story, he goes up there and God provides then you got Moses and the Red Sea, and there's so many different miracles in the life of Moses and his leadership. But Moses leads Egypt or Israel out of Egypt. They literally, there in Exodus 14, they get to the edge of the Red Sea, and God actually changes their course so that they go back to the Red Sea, where it's at their back, so that Pharaoh can be coming from their front, and all of a sudden they're boxed in, and God steps in and does what only he can do. And I've been struggling. What is that fourth one? How do you narrow down all the miracles in the Bible to that fourth one? And as we were singing this morning, I just felt like the Lord was leading us to to Jesus and his miracles, particularly when Peter sees Jesus walking on the water, and Jesus calls to Peter and says, come to me. And he steps out of the boat. And so we're going to look at those four miracle stories within the Scripture beginning next Sunday, and I hope you'll be with us through the month of September. I am excited about school starting back next week because that means our families are back. Uh, Everybody's been on vacation all summer, which is what we do. 
But I'm excited about getting some more of a routine in the life of our church, get some momentum as we go into the fall. And so it's good to see some of your faces that I haven't seen in a few weeks. And so thank you for being here this morning. Take your Bible if you haven't already and find your place in Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be working through verse 3 this morning. Let me share a little story with you. John and Ella had moved to town with their three children. Now, John wasn't the type of husband, he wasn't the type of dad who attended church, but with this, now, this, this particular move, Ella was determined to get her children, who were all under the age of seven, she was determined to get all of her children and herself back into church after not attending for two years. And so one day she passed a church sign and noted that in her mind, and, and she got home, she looked up that church on the website, and, or on the internet, and found their website, and, and made plans to go visit that church the next Sunday. The website that she looked up for the church indicated that the service started at 10, 10 15. The reality was that the service started at 10 a.m. The time of service was changed seven months earlier, but no one thought to change it on the website. So when Ella arrived on that Sunday morning at 10.05, she was actually five minutes late for the service, thinking she was 10 minutes early. Ever happened to you? Has that ever happened to you? Hopefully not here. By the way, as she was heading to church that particular morning, it started raining. And uh, so she pulls onto the campus of the church. She couldn't find any guest parking, though the website said that it was there. She couldn't find any signs directing it, her to them. And so she found the first spot she could Get, and it was actually some distance from the entrance of the church and yet even though it's raining and the, even though she has three kids and she's on, on her own she moves toward the for, toward the entrance of the church and has all three kids like ducklings behind her since she was late uh, she didn't have anyone else to follow you ever visit a church and and really don't know where to go but you just kind of get in line follow the traffic you know they just kind of tell hopefully they take you to the right place this wasn't happening for her on this particular day and so she went to what she thought was a an obvious front entrance but as she got there to the door it was locked and so she's fumbling around she's got kids right now who are soaking wet and crying and and so yet she's determined to find the right door to go into church she wants to be in church by this time, when she finds the right door, there's no greeter. She goes inside. There's no signage within the halls to direct her where the children's area was. And so, very exasperated, very uh, discouraged, she proceeds, even making wrong turns in the hallways, but finally finds the children's area. By now, she's 20 minutes into the service. She gets in there. She finds a seat. Obviously, everybody's packed in and doing what they normally do, and so for obvious reasons, she has a hard time focusing on them preaching. Ella, however, still completed a guest card and turned it into the offering plate when it came by at the end of the service. She really was more curious if people would actually contact her than wanting her or wanting them to contact her, and so as expected, later that week, no one contacted her. I think this morning as you hear that story, we can all agree that the church Ella visited was not a very welcoming church. I think we can also all agree that a church must be welcoming. You want to be a part of a church that's welcoming. As you came in this morning, you expected to be welcomed. You expected for people to acknowledge you and, and want you to be here at Red Lane. And so what does it take for a church to be welcoming? 
What does it take for a church to take on that persona of a church that's a welcoming church, that's a church that wants you to be there? The answer to that question is, it takes people with a welcoming disposition. I mean, how would you feel if I came to you after the service this morning and, and it said, hey, I need you to be a parking lot greeter next Sunday. Any takers on that question? Many of you would respond like Steve. Steve had a severe case of introversion. He was so extreme in his introvertedness that he made the typical introvert actually look like an extrovert. That's how bad he was. He struggled to look people in the eye. He couldn't carry a conversation on with anyone he didn't already know. And yet the small church where Steve was a member was a growing church. They were actually at this point running about 25 people. And everyone in the church was busy doing something except for Steve. Steve was a new Christian and he was being discipled by his pastor. And so during one of the D group times, during one of the discipleship times with the pastor, the pastor asked Steve to be a greeter on Sunday mornings. He pointed out how this uh, new convert, this new believer who's growing in his faith, could do a very good job at being a greeter. But as you can imagine, this introvert reacted as if he was in a horror movie. I mean, can you be, some of you are introverts like me. And if you're asked that question by somebody, said, hey, I want you to be a greeter, what do you think about that? Your face would light up like you were in a horror movie. Your jaw would hit the ground, and you perhaps would respond like Steve did. No. A swift no with a little bit of profanity added on to it. See, he was still working on his sanctification, and so I can only imagine what he said to the pastor. And yet the pastor wasn't surprised. In fact, he would have been surprised if he would have responded any other way. But he still needed a greeter at the church, and sometimes, as we always are, he was desperate. One day when the pastor went to pick Steve up, Steve and he were uh, in a discipleship relationship with one another. And so oftentimes they would use Steve's lunch hour to go and to pray and to read scripture and to grow in their faith. And so the pastor would oftentimes go to Steve's job and pick him up for lunch. He was a body shop mechanic and so he was there a little early. He went in and just kind of sat there waiting on Steve to finish up and began to observe Steve interacting with this lady, this customer who was having some work done. She was obviously distraught. She was obviously nervous and anxious about all of the repairs that were needed for her car and the cost and we've all been there of course. But as the pastor watched Steve interacting with this lady, he saw something in Steve he'd never seen before. Steve was able to take this lady and her situation and calm her and share with her that he, she didn't need all of these repairs up front. She could get by with a few affordable repairs. And so he was able to calm her down and to loosen or lessen the anxiety. So when Steve got in the car, the pastor just stared at Steve for a minute or two and just with a big grin on his face. So it made Steve uncomfortable. He looks over and he says, What? The pastor responded to him, you dog, you, you do just fine interacting with people. I saw how you handled that lady. She went from upset to calm in just a matter of moments. And so you are now officially the greeter at church. <laughs> Steve responded with a few more flavored words to the pastor. And yet the pastor said, look, Steve, being a greeter just means being your friendly self, just like you were with that lady. You don't have to become someone that you're not. Just pretend like you were at the body shop about to have a conversation with a customer. Just be friendly. You see, what's true for Steve is true for you and I. Becoming welcoming is simply being friendly. 
And it's not hard, but it's all the time neglected. This month, we've been working through a series on biblical hospitality. We've been looking at this idea of loving strangers as God lays it out in his word. See, the meta-narrative of Scripture, the grand story of the Bible, is that God welcomes all people. That God loves you so much that he has done everything necessary to welcome you into a relationship with himself. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. In other words, he says, I'm inviting every single person on the face of the earth to be in relationship with me. From this, we've learned a great biblical truth this month. And here it is again. We are to welcome the stranger because God in Jesus Christ has welcomed us as strangers. Our God is a welcoming God. He embraces the stranger with his arms wide open. And so as born-again children into the family of God, as his image bears in this dark world, we too are to welcome strangers because the Lord has welcomed us. So what we've learned this month is this. We've learned that you are welcome in Jesus Christ. We've learned that all are welcome in Jesus Christ. And we have learned this past Sunday what it looks like to be welcoming. And so today as we finish out this series, I want to speak to this subject. I want to show you the path to become welcoming. We've seen that Jesus welcomes. We've seen that he welcomes everybody. We've seen what it looks like to be a welcoming. So how do we get to where we need to be like Jesus, welcoming all people. If you've got your place there in Philippians chapter 2, I want us to read verse 3, and then I'm going to spend the bulk of the time unpacking how this verse applies to what we're talking about. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you take your word and speak it into our hearts. Lord, help us to understand this morning that you have welcomed us with arms wide open. Your love overflows toward us. God, those of us who've experienced that love, who've experienced the welcoming of Jesus Christ, help us now also to be welcoming to others. Personally, God, help us as a church to be more and more welcoming corporately to those who need to know Christ as well. Bless us this morning. Open our hearts. Spirit, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians, this great letter in the New Testament, is often referred to as the epistle of joy. And the reason it's often referred to as the epistle of joy is because of how many times Paul talks about joy or, or rejoicing. And so one would expect that Paul's life, based upon what we read here, just of him talking of how joyous we should have things in life or how we should per, per, uh, perceive things of life, we would expect that Paul's life was perfect and without any difficulty whatsoever. And yet that's not the case at all. Paul, as he pins this letter to the Philippian believers there in Philippi, is actually under arrest. He's a, prison of, he's a prisoner of Rome. And yet he writes and he talks about the joy he has. He talks about how the joy the believers should have there in Philippi. And he's seeking to encourage them even though he's in very difficult circumstances. You see, Paul had faced many hardships in his life and throughout his ministry. And yet through it all, he had joy. He was able to rejoice despite difficulties and circumstances. And so Paul wanted the Philippian believers to experience the joy of the Lord. And he explained that it partly comes through service. 
One of the ways that we can find and hold on to the joy of the Lord is simply in our service to the Lord and to others. And so Paul called the Philippians to a life of humble service to Christ and to other people. He called them to follow the example of Jesus who humbled himself and served humanity. The Lord is a welcoming Savior because he looked beyond himself and he came to us. That's what he lays out in verses 5 through 8 as he talks about how Jesus did not uh, regard equality with God something to hold on to, but he despised it all. He went to the cross and bore our sin and shame. And so we learn from Jesus that a welcoming church looks beyond themselves and goes to the people. And so this morning I want to share with you the path to becoming welcoming. Four things I want you to see, four steps perhaps, that I want you to see this morning. First of all, the first step is this, grasp the importance. We need to grasp the importance of what it means and why we should be a welcoming Christian and why we should be a welcoming church. Here's a question I want you to wrestle with for a moment. Would you ever return to a place where you did not feel welcome? Would you ever go to a church that you visited that you just didn't feel welcome? Would you ever go to a, a restaurant where you walk in? And, and one of the things that, uh, if you've ever been to Atlanta and you've been to Varsity, Varsity Grill, you walk up there, my first time experiencing it. Kara and I were dating. She's from Atlanta. She's actually been in Atlanta all the latter part of this week and hopefully is flying home this afternoon. Can I get an amen for that? Daddy needs a break. But I remember going to the Varsity Grill in downtown Atlanta with Kara and some friends. And you walk in there, and they like slam the counter like, what do you have? And like yell at you and stuff. I mean, I'm from Arkansas. We are nice people in Arkansas. I didn't know how to take that. And yet it's the culture of that restaurant. You just got to know it going in. What if you walked into a restaurant this afternoon for lunch, and the waitress was hateful and yelled at you, and they didn't really want you there, and it was very evident. Would you ever return? Would you return to a church like that, a department store that's like that? Obviously, the answer is no. Customer service is what we expect. It's what drives business. I mean, think about it. Chick-fil-A's uh, the best and most profitable uh, fast food restaurant chain there is in the world. And, and think about what makes, fast, or what makes Chick-fil-A so good. Outside of their superior chicken, which there is no better chicken, I believe there will be a glorified version of Chick-fil-A in heaven one day. We will gather around the throne at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and some person will come out there with a Chick-fil-A uniform on, and they will tell us that it's their pleasure to serve us, and they will give us glorified chicken sandwiches. It's just my thought. I don't know. But outside of their superior chicken, I believe the one thing that sets Chick-fil-A apart from all of their competitors is their customer service. You walk into the restaurant, you immediately feel that you're welcome. You feel wanted there at their restaurant. This feeling is extremely important because what takes place in the first few minutes when you visit an organization or an establishment will largely determine whether or not you will return. In everything that we do, in every place that we go, our decisions upon whether or not we will return are made very soon upon arrival. And the same is true in the local church. Here's a statement. What takes place in the first 10 minutes when a first-time guest arrives at our church will largely determine whether he or she will return. It's what they see when they come onto our campus. It's what they experience as they get out of their car. It's what they, how they're greeted as they come through the door, whether or not they can find the doors, whether or not they can find the places they need to go. All of those things are impacting them and making a decision whether or not they will return. It's 
whether or not you interact with them in the worship center or if you just talk with your holy huddle and never even acknowledge them, they're taking note of that and they're determining whether or not they actually are welcome at our church. And so Paul here says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, what Paul's saying at the end of this verse is this. Don't think about yourself. That's what Paul's saying in verse 4. He goes on to say, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the example that Christ gives us that Paul lays out in verses 5 through 8 as he talks about him going to the cross for us. He despised the shame there, despised what the cross was going to bring him, but he did it on behalf of humanity. How many times are you guilty of focusing on yourself? How many times are you guilty of focusing on your preferences? How many times are you guilty on focusing on your agenda without even considering others around you? How many times do you neglect the people God is bringing to you because you're so focused on yourself that you don't even see them? And How often as a church do guests see us as unwelcoming because we overlook them? We don't see them. Uh, I know of a family who attended a church for a long time. They never really felt welcome in this church. You see, every time they would come in on a Sunday morning, they would walk down the aisles to find their seat like all of us do. And people would be there, and they would be waving and looking, but they weren't really waving at them or looking at them. They're looking through them to their friends and their acquaintances and the people they wanted to talk to. And so we've all probably experienced that on some level. Rather than seeing you, people have looked through you to others. So you and I must grasp the importance of becoming a welcoming Christian and thus a welcoming church. Each of us individually play a critical role in God's activity. The path to becoming a welcoming Christian and a welcoming church is to grasp how eternally important it is to be welcoming. It's a difference between life and death in some cases. The second step I want you to see this morning is this. Not only grasp the importance, but develop proper priorities. Develop proper priorities. Again, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Then verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so what are your priorities as a follower of Christ? What are your priorities today as a follower of Christ? What are our priorities as a church? Paul would say, do nothing from selfishness, but let each of you look not to his own, but to the interest of others. And so I believe our priorities as individual believers, they should be worship, they should be the word, and they should be witness. You see, we should be daily and weekly worshiping the Lord. We should be studying and learning from God's Word. That's why we should be in a small group. That's why we should be in worship service so that the preaching of the Word can be expounded. That's why you should have a daily devotion time with the Lord. Those things are paramount to your Christian life. But also, every one of us should be a witness. We should be telling others about the goodness that we found in Jesus. Those priorities are the same for the church corporately. We should be a going church, going to others with the gospel, seeking to fulfill the Great Commission. And likewise, we should be focused on groups. We should want people to experience God in our corporate worship service and in a small group. 
We're focused on that as a church. Therefore, we should also be focused on guests. It shouldn't be about us four and no more. Your small group should never be a closed group. You should always have a mindset. We want new people in this group. We want lost people in this group. We want people who are struggling in their faith in this group. We want people who are, who are entrenched in sin in this group because they need God like we needed God and still need God. We need to be a church and Christians who are focused on strangers. Our priorities as Christians must never be fixed on our personal preferences. But instead, we must always show deference toward others. In many ways, we shouldn't even be focused on what the worship center looks like. I mean, for us, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter at all. It shouldn't matter what songs we sing. As long as they're biblical, as long as they exalt Jesus, who cares about the tomb? Who cares about the pace? Who cares whether they're old or new? Let's just worship Jesus. But to those who don't know Christ, those who are not part of our church, those things may matter more than us. The look of the worship center may matter more to them. And so we need to be focused on creating an environment that engages people so that they can hear the message of the gospel. You've already taken, hopefully, the lure. I, I love to bass fish. I, I love to fish in general. When you are fishing and you've got that lure in the water and that fish comes up and swallows it, once, you, once that sucker takes the hook, he's on. Unless you're didn't get a good hook set, he's not coming off. And so we have taken the lure. We are hooked on Jesus. So none of those things should really matter to us. They're surface-level things. But to those who have not yet found life in Jesus Christ, they may be the difference whether or not they're going to sit around and listen to the message of the gospel. And so we need to be focused on guests. We need to be focused on outsiders, if you want to call them that, people who are not yet part of us. The path to becoming a welcoming Christian and a welcoming church involves developing the proper priorities. May we never get tripped up on trivial and secondary issues, but always focus on what's most important. Third step is this, commit to serve. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He says, in humility. What does it mean to be humble? To be humble means that you're putting others ahead of yourself. It means that you're taking a back seat so that others can be in the front seat. It means that you are setting yourself aside and becoming a servant. Paul here powerfully describes the role of a servant in this chapter. And he uses Jesus as the example. He explains that becoming a servant means following the example of the Lord. He is his humility and his service. Think about it. It took him to the cross. Jesus set aside his glory. Jesus set aside his, his royal uh, things that he was that he deserved, that he needed, that, that should have been ascribed to them. And for a moment, set those aside, veiled his glory so that he could become a human and serve humanity. The path to becoming a welcoming Christian means that we must be committed to serving others. And so this morning, how do you measure up? How do you measure up in your service? Sometimes preachers will say it this way, how's your serve? Sort of a, a tennis type of picture. What's your service like? Are you this morning just a recipient of grace, or are you an extender of that grace to others? Are you nothing more than a spectator at church, or are you a servant who's actively participating in the mission of the church? 
How's your serve this morning? You go across our nation, you go to evangelical church after evangelical church after evangelical church, and what you will find is this, spectators. You will find people who call themselves Christians, and let's just be honest, many of them probably are Christians, but they're nothing more than spectators. They're coming in with this mindset, bless me if you can, give me something. They're a consumer, not a producer. We need to be those who would not just receive grace, but extend that grace and service to others. We need to be a part of the mission. Every Christian should have a place of service. Every member in our church should see themselves as a minister of the gospel, serving the people of our community. Commit to serve. Fourthly, the fourth step is this. Remember to change. Remember to change. Man, I'm not even going to really ask you this question because it's dangerous and your wife's sitting next to you. So I'm going to ask it just in general. How's your relationship with your spouse? Man, is it rocking and rolling or is it kind of stale? You in a rut or are you up on the high ground and you're making some new ground in your relationships? You see, the reality is that relationships have, have a tendency to grow stale. It's easy to fall into ruts. It's easy to fall into routines. I am such a routine guy. I'm such a habitual guy that I have to really focus to get out of ruts and routines in my life. I like doing the same thing every day. Uh, Andy, take anybody like that, you just say, I have a complex, I am in some sort of 12-step program to get me out of this routine, but that's where I'm at. I have to focus to get out of that. I mean, I, I love to go to the gym, I love to work out, but you know what? I typically do the same workout every week, which means I get plateaued all the time. So I've got to constantly really focus in this area. I've got to change it up. I've got to do something different. I've got to work something else out. I've got to tweak it here or there. Because routines become stale. And so we take our relationships and our ministries oftentimes for granted because we allow them to get into a rut. And therefore, it's imperative that we intentionally freshen things up on occasion. Here's a statement. A welcoming Christian, and thus a welcoming church, seeks to connect with an ever-changing culture. Think about what that statement is saying. A welcoming Christian is always seeking to reach and to engage an ever-changing culture. If you are 50-plus uh, in this room this morning, you've seen a lot of changes. Think about all the things that have changed in your life. Uh, if you're 50, 60, or above that, you've seen the first time that mankind stepped onto the moon. Those of us who are younger, we grew up thinking that we've already been to the moon, because it already happened. But you saw that. You, you lived through the days where our nation was moving to that point, and, and it seems like there will be a day in the near decades where we will put a human on Mars. Think about all the things that have changed in our lifetime. Our culture changes. Technology changes. Mindsets change. Everything changes. And with every passing generation, every generation struggles to understand the next generation. I can remember as a child, my grandpa really wrestling to understand his grandchildren. I mean, he, he didn't understand. I taught, he's from East Arkansas, and, and I was from Northwest Arkansas, and my dad, is, his son, is, they grew up in Michigan, so I had this Yankee influence, and I've always talked fast. I do everything fast in my life, and I remember him just fussing at me as a kid. Son, you talk too fast. 
I don't know how to not talk fast. I do everything fast. I drive fast. Sometimes that gets me in trouble. Got a, I had a state trooper at the gym the other day tell me that if he ever saw me pat, speeding, I had a pass with him. So I hope he's on the road all the time. I'm just going to say, Mike, man, you, where are you at? I'm going to hit him on the CB or something and forgot where he's at. I'm joking with that. I'm not advocating sin, by the way. But every generation struggles to, to understand the next one. Grandparents always scratching their heads as they seek to understand their grandchildren. And think about this. Grandchildren, though they love their grandparents are always struggling to understand the mindset of their grandparents. They, they just don't understand it. I remember going over to my grandparents' house when I was a little younger, and they were still alive. And, and back then, we didn't even have all the technology that we have today. But every time I went to their house, I had to reprogram their remote. It wasn't even that sophisticated. And they, they would go weeks and not have, they would have that blinking line on the VCR. Remember those days? They would go weeks and not know how to program that thing. I'd walk over there in two seconds, have it programmed. Like, seriously, you can't do this? But, you know, just difference of generations. Not understanding one another. And today we're at the same, we're at the same point that we've always been in. Today in our culture and definitely in our churches, we're struggling to understand the largest generation that we've ever known as Americans. The millennial generation. Those born between 1980 and 2000. Literally, they're the largest population in America's history. Over 78 million millennial young adults could be in our churches today. But because there's this disconnect, only about one in five or about 15 and a half million are in our churches. And so sometimes we, actually for many years, we've been banging our heads against the wall trying to figure out what, what the discrepancy is. But now what we're seeing in research is, sh research is showing that a, a growing receptivity is, is taking place to the gospel. As these younger adults, these millennials are now getting married, having children, they're beginning to, to rethink some things. And though they may still be a little bit apathetic toward our, 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 our message and a little bit apathetic toward our our congregations and church life and all of that, they're not antagonistic to the gospel. And so as church, we have to, to look at ourselves and say, all right, what's the disconnect here? How can we engage the largest population uh, generation in the, nation, in the history of our nation? What can we do to change ourselves to reach them? So rather than walling ourselves off, from a growing secular culture, and rather than continuing to isolate ourselves from younger generations, we must, as a welcoming church and as welcoming followers of Jesus, we must be open to all people. Now, we don't open up or we don't alter the message of the gospel, but we should be willing to open up our ministerial approach. Did you hear what I said? We never fudge on the gospel message. We never uh, take this word and say, all right, we're only going to preach parts of it. We're only going to believe parts of it. We're only going to take the ones that we like or the ones that connect with our culture the best. That's not what we do. We're a verse-by-verse, Bible-believing church, but we need to contextualize the preaching of the word and the ministry of the word to reach people that may not be like us. We need to remember to change. We must always strive to connect with each and every generation, with the lost as well as the churched in our community. And so what we cannot do is retreat. What we cannot do is wall ourselves off. Change is inevitable. I was, I was cutting my hair this morning, 
because I hadn't had time the last couple days. And so it's dark outside. I got lights flipped up because I, I, I do my own hair. I don't really pay for this. And so it was, it was 6 o'clock this morning. It's dark outside. I had the lights on on the back deck, and I'm out there with a mirror hanging on the door. I, I mean, it's, it's redneck. is all redneck. And I'm out there doing all this. And every time I cut my hair, and every, I had a beard. I hadn't shaved in a few days. And uh, last night when I was putting the girls to bed, Haley was kind of fussing at me. Why do you have a beard? I was like, I hadn't shaved in like two, three days. So this morning, I was gray all over, gray head, gray face. And I just hate it. I hate it, hate it, hate it. But that's part of life. It's part of life. Actually, I kind of like it. The Bible says that uh, gray hair is like wisdom. It, you know, it's a crown upon our heads. And so maybe it's good. Change is inevitable. And for that reason, let's count others as more significant than ourselves. Let's be willing to always keep our ministry fresh and to keep it relevant. Remember to change. And as we do so, remember a welcoming church looks beyond themselves. A welcoming church goes to the people. And so how can we personally do that? Let me give you some practical steps, and then I'll, I'll land the plane. Let me give you four practical steps this morning. These are for you personally. Number one, smile. Smile. You say, that's, that's kind of elementary. Some of you need to practice it. Some of us as Christians, on Sunday morning... We look like instead of drinking orange juice, or orange juice or coffee for breakfast, we drink vinegar. And you come in here and your face is all snarly. Maybe it's because you didn't get enough sleep. Maybe because you had a bad experience in the drive over with kids. I don't know what. But sometimes you just need to, to, to smile. Just smile to people. Show that you're friendly. I mean, the easiest thing that we can do is to smile. Why do we look so so mad at times? Why do we look so frustrated at times? Why do we look like, uh, like we're just mean? Why? I want you to think about who you are as a Christian. The Bible says you're a child of the king. There's something to smile about there. You're the child of the king. You're the child of the Savior. Your eternity is in heaven. You have a song to sing. You have a Savior to praise. You have a message to tell. There's something to smile about. That song we used to sing as kids, if you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. You need to practice that in your life. You need some joy in your heart. Paul says, be joy, rejoice in all things. Smile. That goes a long way to building relationships. Secondly, speak to others. Speak to others. We live in a culture where we no longer speak to people. Especially younger generations. You walk around and your head's in the phone. I, I'm guilty of it too. Everything we do is in our phones. Everything we do is in a tablet, a, some sort of electronic. Drives me insane more and more with my, my own children. I'm just ripping it out of their hands. So one of these days I may just chunk it out in the, the swamp behind our house because that's what we have. There's a creek and a swamp. Speak to others. Man, if you want to be a, 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 a hospitable, welcoming person, it requires you to smile and it requires you to speak to people we live in a culture where we are so self-absorbed so engrossed in ourselves so we need to refuse to live like that we need to speak to people when you come to church speak to people get here early and speak to people set out i mean i, I some of you weren't here, but when I got up to do our men's prayer time before the service begins, I, I just thanked them. I thanked the people who are here because what I love to hear as a pastor is the congregation congregating with one another. 
I love to hear the talk and the conversations and the fellowship. And I'm not talking about eavesdropping. I don't even understand what's going on. I just hear the, the roar of the room because people are talking. That's a good thing. Speak to people. Build relationships. And don't just speak with the people you know. Speak to people you don't know. Get to know them. Thirdly, show genuine concern. As you get to know others, care about what's going on in their lives. Because we need to remember, hospitality is the love of strangers. And loving a stranger means that you care and meet their needs. So pray for them. Follow up with them during the week. Seek to meet their need. Show genuine concern. Do that here corporately in the church. Do that at your work. Do that in your neighborhood. Do that at the, at the marketplace. Wherever you find yourself around others, show genuine concern. You know what that will require? You to stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about what you've got to do next. Get out of your routine and focus on people. And then lastly, invite others to your home. Invite others to your home. Over the last 20 years of ministry, and I've been doing this since 98, more and more I've noticed that we as Christians are neglecting more and more one of the greatest tools that God has given us, that's our homes. How many times have you had people to your house just to minister? And I'm not talking about your friends. I'm not talking about the people who always come to your house. But using your home as a tool, as a gospel tool, to invest in someone else's life. I mean, think about this. When and where did Jesus do most of his most intimate ministry? It was in a home, and it was around a meal. How many times are we using those things to invest in others? How many times are you inviting people over for a meal? We need to use our home. Use it for gospel ministry. Some of the greatest ministry you'll ever be a part of might be around your dining table. It might be in your living room. And so invite people over for lunch after church. Don't go to the restaurant, but if you do go to the restaurant, take people with you. Invest in them. Use that time. Use those opportunities, not just to get a, a meal, not just to, to kind of tie yourself over so you can go take a nap or watch the grace or whatever it may be, but invest in people. Invite people over for lunch. Invite them for dinner throughout the week. Have fellowship with people over at your house on Saturdays. Don't worry about being fancy. Use paper plates. Use paper or, or plastic cups. Don't worry about what your house looks like. Sometimes people will say, Pastor, if you come over, just look past the dust. I don't care about your dust. I know you're just like me. If I go into your home and I see a, something walled off or I see a, a door closed, that's because like at my house, we don't want you to see that room. Because if you open the door, it may come out on you. I don't, I'm, I'm okay with that. You don't need to put your best foot forward. I know you're a mess just like the rest of us. Just have people in your home. Invite them, invest in them. Give yourselves in service to others. And then with that, invite them to your house of worship. Invite people to church with you. Roll out the red carpet. And welcome people into your lives. Welcome them to our church. Because think about what Jesus did. He rolled out the red carpet for you. The Bible tells us that he shed his blood on the cross so that you could be welcomed for eternity. He gave his best. He gave his all so that you could be welcomed by God the Father. This morning, 
The greatest need in your life may be that you need to say yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. For others in this room, the greatest need in your life, you're a follower of Jesus, but this morning the greatest need in your life is to simply get, a, get alone with God, maybe in your seat or up here at the front, and to say, Lord Jesus, I'm blowing it in some areas. Everything the pastor's been talking about, I'm just not that. I'm selfish. I'm self-absorbed. I'm engrossed in myself. I don't care about others. I definitely don't use my home. I'm not investing. And so, Lord, I don't even know where to start. So I'm just going to lay that out. Lord, I've messed up. I'm missing it in this area. Please forgive me and help me to do better. Where are you at this morning? What is God speaking into your heart and into your life? Lord Jesus, this morning, I thank you that you have welcomed us. God, I thank you that in welcoming us, you've called us to be the same to others. To welcome the lost, to welcome the unchurched, to invest the life that you've invested into us and to others. Lord, this morning, there probably are some people in this room. This many people in a room this size, statistics would tell us there's lost people here. And so, God, this morning I pray, as I would pray every Sunday, that this would be the day of salvation for them. That, Lord, they would understand their brokenness, they would understand their sinfulness, they would understand the separation that sin has caused between them and God. That, Lord, they would put their faith and trust in you and what you've done to redeem and to forgive their sin. So, Lord, may they be saved this morning. God, give them boldness to make that decision public as well. Lord God, I pray for Christians across this room who today maybe are realizing that they're not what they need to be. They're not doing what they need to be doing. But Lord, if they were to have to stand and give an account of their lives before you, they would have to admit that most of what they do is a waste. God, you've invested so much in them and yet they're doing very little with it. God, may this morning be a a moment, a crisis of belief, a crisis of decision. We just say, Lord Jesus, I I confess this is a sin. I confess this is not right. Would you ask, would you please forgive me? I ask that you would help me to now walk in, in obedience to what you'd have me to do. God, may we be more welcoming individually and thus more welcoming. Father, this time is yours. Lead us, direct us in this time of response. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you stand to your feet.